invite you to make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This passage is certainly familiar to us as a church. We've considered it only one other time since I've been here a million years ago. Uh, Just one other time on a Sunday morning. And yet, on the other hand, we consider it really everyone who seeks to become a member of the church works through this passage in our uh, membership seminar. And its themes reverberate through our life together and other sermons and lessons along the way. But today I'd like to take a fresh look at this passage from a different angle than we have considered before together. And there are numerous angles. What do you know about 1 Corinthians 12? We could consider each of the spiritual gifts that are here and their practical use in the assembly. We will consider them briefly, more of an overview today of the chapter as it is lengthy and our time is limited, but we could do that. We could, in fact, do a series of sermons on each of the gifts and consider its practical use within the assembly. We could focus on whether or not the miraculous gifts continue today. This is a debated point. Do they, have they ceased or do they continue on in the life of the church? And that could take up our time as well. We could narrow in on verses 12 and 13, and I think that would be a full sermon right there. As we look at the various interpretations, particularly at verse 13, and then the implications of those divergent interpretations in the life of specific churches. This would be a worthy discussion as well. Today I'd like to focus on our self-understanding as a local church and thus to aid our mutual quest to glorify the Lord as the body of Christ. And that's no small ambition. And as I prayed here as we came to the Word, this is something that we must continue to work on as a church. What is our self-perception as a church? As we come in with the assembly, as we relate to the church? How do we perceive ourselves? How do we look at ourselves? Something we must routinely consider because it is not natural to us to think the way the Lord of the church directs us to think. If you've been around this assembly for any length of time, I'm confident you will get the right answer to a multiple choice quiz. We take a little bit of time to work through this, not just to have some fun together, but to be bending toward the message of 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm confident that we'll all get this right. The Corinthians faced a set of problems that we do not face. They struggled in some ways that we do not. But as we see how Paul instructs them, as we consider these ideas, as we see how he teaches them, what, what he reveals about the will of the Lord of the church, how Christ sees us, and how we then in turn should see ourselves, there is much here for us to gain, even though our church has a very different history and experience than the Corinthian believers. So here's the multiple choice. Does Jesus design our life together? Does he intend for you to kind of relate to the church and to perceive yourself as a member of the church? Does he see that, first of all, like someone who attends a movie? They go to a movie theater, there's other people there, people they don't know, but they they go to the movie theater and they kind of take in the movie. Or secondly, like someone who cheers on a favorite team. Now here there's a little di- different dynamic with the members that are there, the fans that are there in the stands, a little different dynamic. Does, is that a good picture of it? Or would it be more like playing an instrument in a symphony? What do you think? Let's think about this for a moment. How do you perceive this? People who are watching a movie. Really, this is a pretty individualistic event. You might go with somebody and and make that connection, maybe a family or friend or something, but let's look at a few of these people. I mean, this lady right there, she's having a good time, apparently. She seems to be enjoying uh, this film. But let's look at this guy over there. 
I mean, you look at those two, those are really different looks. I realize that it's just a snapshot in a second of time, and this guy might be smiling in three seconds, and she's looking at her popcorn. But you see, it illustrates the idea. You're taking this in as an individual. And then you got the guy over here who really doesn't care about the film at all. He just cares about the popcorn. That's, that's all he's looking at, right? Very different reactions. And as these people leave the theater, and unless they know each other personally, there's a conversation there, particularly with family and friends. There's a close conversation about how you took it, but what's the point? How'd you take it? Did you personally enjoy it? And even the people that you're with, that you're close to, they might differ, and that's okay. I loved it. I hated it. Made me cry. Made me laugh. I just wanted to eat popcorn. Different takes, but really it's the individual and how that person perceives what is going on. Very little necessary relationship between the people that are there. The second idea. Maybe our perception of how we relate as a church is illustrated by, a, by participation as a fan, cheering on the home team. Now, the goal here is for everybody to get the same feeling. There's, there's, there's a unity here, a conformity here. I mean, that's really the point, is you're hoping that your team where most of the fans are cheering, you hope, as the home team. You hope we're all going to have something to cheer about and to cheer at the same time. Forgive me, I know this is very offensive to some of you from over the border, uh, but uh, that's, I really didn't look for Vikings. I just found this. Because of the unity of it. Apparently, I don't know, Vikings were swimming or diving or something or maybe more like a safety but you see the reaction there. Now, again, he, this is different than a movie. The, the goal is for everybody to be reacting the same way. But in a game, it doesn't always work that way, does it? I mean, look what we got going on here. Right? These are the respectable fans. You know, they'll even stand up and clap a little bit. It's kind of respectable cheering. The guy down here, I mean, he looks like he just lost his best friend. You know, or, or maybe he thought he left the water running in the sink or something. I mean, he just doesn't look like he's with them at all. And then there's this guy who nobody really wants to be there. <laughs> You're just wishing that guy wasn't sitting in front of you. So again, we see even though there's a goal of everybody being unified in one response, it doesn't always happen. You got these guys who are absolutely committed, and I mean committed, but then you got the guy up here who's just really on another planet. Or the guy here who doesn't really seem to even know what his name is. <laughs> Be just all kinds of difference. And then in games, there's times you can't really get along. Uh, I mean, you just can't get the cheering going. It's kind of uncomfortable, and you all just sort of sit there and wish that you were cheering. Well, this is not a lot happening. What's the relationship with these individuals? Well, we come to the third, and as my children always tell me, whenever I do a multiple choice, the answer is always the last one. Well, here you go. <laughs> but is it not like a symphony? Different instruments assigned to different individuals all playing together with one common goal, that their work together would be something greater than the individual parts, but the individual parts mattering considerably. There's a high level of cooperation here. In fact, there often are deep relationships that are made, and every single part really matters. There are individuals here who are first chair. That's one thing I learned in orchestra when I participated. I learned what third chair was because that was me. I was third chair. And my job as third chair on the trumpet was to stay out of the way. Just, just hit what you can hit and don't cause trouble to everybody else. But seriously, there are different roles that are played within this orchestra, different instruments, but all pulling together in the same direction. I'm sure that we would understand this is a better picture of the way that we should perceive ourselves as a church. 
But I trust that we also realize that this comparison falls very far short of the way that Jesus intends for us to perceive ourselves as members of the body of Christ. This doesn't go far enough. And this brings us to Paul's conversation here in chapter 12 with the Corinthians. In fact, with the entire book, we come upon a church that is deeply divided. They are so divided that there's names for their factions. And Paul addresses this right out of the gate. He doesn't even get out of the first chapter before talking to them about their divisions. With this, there is what seems almost certainly to have been very chaotic worship services in which people spoke in tongues. That is, the Holy Spirit gave them utterance to speak, I believe, in languages that they did not know, had never studied. These tongues were expressed in disruptive ways in the assembly. And those who were so gifted by the Spirit of God to speak these messages from God in a tongue they had never known before, this ability fueled spiritual pride and greased the slide of these factions as they worked against one another. The Corinthians had a number of questions that they are asking Paul in this letter, and he begins to directly address those in chapter 7. In chapter 7, he speaks to them about some of their questions concerning marriage, and in chapters 8 through 10, idolatry and meat offered to idols. How should we view this? In chapter 11, he talks to them about the Lord's Supper. And here's why I say there's a great difference between them and our church. There were people at the Lord's Supper getting drunk. And we haven't dealt with that problem yet. And by God's grace, that'll never happen in the history of this church. But that, they were dealing with that. There were people who were disregarding others, even at the Lord's table, what, what was intended to draw them together and to unite them. But they were divided even there. Chapter 12, Paul begins to address their question concerning spiritual gifts or those so gifted. Chapter 12 and verse 1 speaks of concerning spiritual gifts, but that word gifts is actually supplied. It's spirituals, whether spiritual gifts or spiritual people, and there's really not a lot of distinction between them because it's not spiritual people, those who are saved and have the Spirit, but those who have the capacity to display gifts of the Spirit. Paul will actually use a different word later, emphasizing that these are a gift. But we have these miraculous, dramatic gifts of the Spirit being given to this church and being displayed in self-centered ways. There is infighting, there is pride, there is division. And these divisions are fostered in this assembly, revealing a fundamentally flawed self-perception. And this is what Paul now wants to address. He's going to answer their question most directly in chapter 14. But before he gets there, he wants to talk about their perception, their self-perception. Their perception did not parallel watching a movie. This come in individually, hear a message, leave, take it in. That wasn't their perception at all. Nor was it like attending a game, and it wasn't like playing in a symphony either. For the Corinthians, the self-perception of how they relate to one another was more like a boxing match. Look at what I can do and how I can beat you up. That was the goal. That, or that was the culture of the church. But as the Apostle Paul counsels and exhorts them to fundamentally change the way they see themselves in relation to Christ and then in relationship to one another. The message that he provides here for us is utterly life-saving for all local churches. Even though, praise God, we don't suffer much of the same dysfunction and sin that the Corinthian church did. But here's what we need to learn. Here's what we need to see. First of all, that there is one confession. One New confession. The Holy Spirit converts idolaters who proclaim Jesus as accursed into worshipers who proclaim Him as Lord. This is to fuel our self-perception. There's a new confession. Notice verse 1. 
Concerning these spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led, however you got there, that was the outcome. Therefore, I want you to understand. So I don't want you to be ignorant, verse 1. Verse 3, I want you to understand this, that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. There's a lot that can be read into these verses. I think we want to avoid that. Before turning, the simple point is before turning from their pagan beliefs to trust Christ, they sang a different song. I think that's the point. In their blind ignorance, they could only belittle, despise, and dismiss a Savior so lowly as to be crucified. Jesus was a loser who died on a Roman cross. What's the like about that? Not my Lord, not my Savior. I have my gods who are a lot more powerful than that. You saw him as a curse. Perhaps even you cursed him. That something happened. I mean, these were bad people before they were saved. They're bad people as believers right now. There's a lot that needs to be corrected. But they were bad, bad people. They were lost in sin. But they heard the message of the gospel. They were washed. The theology of it, what God has revealed to us, is that they were washed in the Holy Spirit so that their human spirits were reborn to live all of life under the banner now of a new song, Jesus is Lord. Can you say that with all your heart? Can you say Jesus is Lord? If you can truly say that Jesus Christ died to suffer the full cost of your sin, that He rose from the dead to give you new life, if your soul now rejoices to say, Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, then you need to know this. The Spirit of the living God put that joy in your heart and put that confession in your mouth. The songs that we sing, I realize we can sing hypocritically, I realize that unbelievers can mouth the words and sing the tune, but when the heart is engaged and we lift up the name of Christ in song here in assembly, that's Jesus' work. And when we're singing here, it is a display that Christ, risen, ascended, and coming again, is conquering the hearts of people, and He's taking the curse out of the mouth, and He's putting this confession in. We display that new confession as we read the word together, as we heed it, as we speak with one another, and certainly as we sing as a church. I think subtly Paul is also saying this in context, that this is enough. They're asking, what, what gifts of the Spirit are superior? What gifts of the Spirit display that we truly belong to Christ? This is where he starts, and I don't think they anticipated this probably. Can you say he is Lord? That's enough. That confession is everything. That is where the church starts, with the transforming power of the third member of the triune God changing hearts. And once he changes that heart, putting in our mouths a new confession, Jesus is Lord, he keeps working. And we find that beginning at verse 4 and following, that there are many gifts. One confession, many gifts, the Holy Spirit manifests his presence in the church by sovereignly empowering spiritual gifts for the church's good. That is, the Spirit continues to be at work supplying and strengthening his church. Verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. There is one Spirit and one confession, but many manifestations of the Spirit's activity in the church. It goes much further, but by way of illustration, it's like the various instruments in the orchestra. There are a lot of different instruments. They don't all function the same way. This isn't a ball game where hopefully everybody's cheering loudly, doing exactly the same thing. 
Rather, there are many different types of gifts. You notice there the word varieties. We could translate it distributions. So it's not just on the fact that the members differ in the gifts that they have, but also that it is the Spirit of God who has distributed these various gifts. So it's difficult to translate, but varieties or distributions with the emphasis on the sovereign assignment of the gifts by the Holy Spirit to the members of the church. And you notice here also in verses 4 through 6, the Trinitarian emphasis. The Trinitarian emphasis here in verse 4, the same Spirit, varieties of service but the same Lord, Christ, the Son, and varieties of activities, but is the same God, the Father. Now, I don't think we should overread this to indicate three entirely distinct aspects of the Spirit's work, or three distinct categories of gifts that God gives, or something like that. The Spirit only does this, and the Son only does this, and the Father only does this. I don't think that's his point. I think he's just pointing to the triune God who apportions gifts, who distributes gifts to his church. To each, verse 7 says, and there that repeats, he empowers them all in everyone. So God is the source, God is the force, the Spirit of God is that one who empowers. God empowers them all, and notice, in everyone, end of verse 6, beginning of verse 7, to each. So the emphasis is on each individual, but now we move forward to say to what end? To what end does the Spirit do this? Why is this the case? Verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Two things. One, the manifestation of the Spirit. That is, spiritual gifts operating in the church manifest. They display or reveal the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church for which Christ died. Eden Baptist Church, that's going on among us by the grace of God. There is to be a keen interest in the Savior's conquest. When a local church displays that keen interest in the Savior's conquest, it is displaying the presence of the Spirit in our assembly. And secondly, we become then a beehive of activity for the Lord. There's a supply of energy that just keeps moving people forward to accomplish for Christ all that we can accomplish. Now I realize that can be done in the flesh. There's a lot of ways to fake that. But where there is genuine ministry taking place and a genuine interest in the spread of the gospel to those who have not heard that message, these are displays of the Spirit's life in our assembly. The second purpose of these gifts, and the second part of verse 7, is for the common good. That is, for the benefit of this whole body. It displays the presence of the Spirit, and it does so for the good of the members. An orchestra member is not invited to play her bassoon in order to feel good about herself. A percussionist is not invited to play for self-fulfillment or self-affirmation or to attract a girlfriend. They're invited to play with all their capacities to contribute to the beauty of the music the entire orchestra makes together. This is a principle the Corinthians were totally missing. Like the guy standing up in the middle of the fans all by himself, there were those individuals standing up to gain attention. It was as if they were taking their instrument in a symphony and running off and playing their own tune. And Paul says, you don't get who you are. You don't understand what the Spirit is doing. Let me help you here. He is in your church working to display His presence. And he is doing it for the good of all. Not for you individually, but for the good of all. Now, undoubtedly, there is individual benefit in it to some degree, but that's not the point that he makes. It is for the common good that the Spirit 
gives these gifts. As they were using their gifts to boost their own egos, to show off, to gain the spotlight, to take personal satisfaction in their spirituality that went little further, with no genuine care for the health of the body, Paul says to them in so many terms, this is messed up. This is all off track. The spiritual gifts that God sovereignly apportions to each one of us is intended for one singular purpose, to benefit the entire body by manifesting that God's Spirit is working among you as a local church. It's all for the common good. That's pretty clear to this point. But... What is Paul talking about exactly? What are these spiritual gifts? He lays those out now beginning in verse 8. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. It's not very spectacular. And I I think there's probably a reason that Paul starts here because on some level this is something that we all should be pursuing and on one level something that we all demonstrate. And that's much of what the point that Paul's making. God's Holy Spirit is displayed in the church in the person who has a keen knack for rightly applying God's truth at the right time. This is not a know-it-all. Nor is it every member who thinks he or she is wise. This is one who has an ability to see life with unusual clarity and apply God's truth to life. The utterance of wisdom. In verse 8, he adds to this, to another is given utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. The same Spirit handing out a different instrument here, and that is utterance of knowledge, speaking knowledge. Very similar to utterance of wisdom. One who speaks wisdom probably speaks a lot less and does not necessarily have an expansive knowledge. This is someone who takes the wisdom of God, can see clearly in a situation how that wisdom applies and may not have a whole lot of clue what other people think or a whole lot of book knowledge or a whole lot of capacity to put together great ideas, but they can see clearly. Perhaps that's the difference between the two. I'm not going to do this with every gift, and I'm going to pick people outside of our church so as not to cause any trouble here. But if you have been around here for some years, and you get this, I see, if I'm right, and I may be wrong, please know that, but I see the gift of wisdom, Gordon Lehman. The gift of knowledge, Brian Blazowski. Sit around Brian for a while and you just see an expansive knowledge of what all kinds of people think about all kinds of things and how to bring that knowledge to bear upon a text of Scripture, for instance, and to write a dissertation. Gordon Lehman couldn't touch any of that, but he can see clearly and bring God's truth to bear right at the right moment. Just to illustrate for those who know them, perhaps that's how God has in the past gifted us and has now gifted Richfield Bible Church, to bring one with the gift of uttering knowledge and one with the gift of uttering wisdom, and those guys need each other. And we need that within our assembly, and I believe that those gifts are here within our assembly as well in the lives of others. In verse 9, he adds to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another working of miracles. Faith here, of course, isn't saving faith. All have that in the body. But probably the capacity to attempt great things for God in near fearless confidence that God will bless. George Mueller always comes to mind in this discussion. John Payton, perhaps, as well. Others who just have this sense that they can trust God when everybody else would say, no chance. The gift of faith, the gift of healing. This is the Spirit-given capacity to heal people miraculously. We're not going to focus here on whether or not the Spirit is giving this gift today as He was in Corinth at this time. I don't think there's anybody among us who doesn't believe that God is fully capable of healing someone. 
But this is a conversation we're going to bypass for now. But I do want to make this observation for the benefit of some among us. The performers on TV who claim to have miracle-working powers and always end up getting other people's money. I want you to hear this. They're frauds. They're, they're, they're faking it. It's not real. And I ask you this question. Did Jesus collect money? As you think of the New Testament, can you think of any place where Jesus collected money for healing someone? Can you think of any instance where the apostles of Jesus collected money for healing someone? We have to rewrite the book of Acts. Peter and John go to the temple. The guy says, can you give me some money? He says, silver and gold have I none, but once I've healed you, I'm going to be really wealthy. If Jesus and the apostles never collected money for healing someone, who do these TV celebrities think that they are doing it? If someone claims to be healing... And if at the same time they're collecting money, they're a fraud. I think I can feel fairly safe about saying that. Now, if a healer walks down the halls of a hospital and heals people from room to room, if the paralyzed are made to walk without having to learn how, and the blind born that way now see immediately with better than 20-20 clarity... And if you listen carefully to that healer's message and it lines up very nicely with what the Bible reveals, then praise God, there's a healer among us. But if that healer is saying, here's what I can do and I'll do it for you if you put your money in my pocket, that is a thief. Don't give him your money. And don't give him any more of your time. If Jesus had walked among us and got his whip out, I think this might be one of the places where he cleared the table. This is wickedness in the name of Christ, so-called. Healings. He did give them these gifts, the Spirit, to the Corinthian believers. And the working of miracles as well. To others, in verse 10, he gave the gift of prophecy. There's many differences of how we understand this word. But I believe it to be speaking a message that God has revealed to a believer, including at times the proclamation of future events which actually take place. And there's the distinguishing of spirits because it's, this is the capacity to discern what looks like or sounds like a true work or message of God, but is actually a work or a message of Satan. For instance, one able to detect a false prophet or a false miracle and help God's people avoid such imposters. Then as we move down through, we see there are various kinds of tongues, verse 10. and in, uh, I'm sorry, the interpretation of tongues. Then verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the point. It's not an exhaustive list, but here it is. As he wills for the common good. The Spirit is actively doing this among his people in his churches. At verse 12, Paul continues forward. One confession, many gifts for the common good, and then one many-membered body. This is our perception. We confess the Lordship of Christ. We receive the many various gifts of the Spirit. And we form then a one many-membered body. The Holy Spirit forming the church as a single body displaying diverse functions for Christ's glory. Taking us through the end of the chapter. And we'll go fairly quickly. The thesis statement in verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Members think body parts. So it is with Christ, this is shorthand for the body of Christ, the church. 
The body of Christ, the church, has many members, simply said. This unity in diversity is now tied to the gospel, to Christ's saving power. Verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Baptized and drink, I would not separate those two. There are Christian communions that do, saying baptism comes at conversion and the drinking of the Spirit comes later on. I wouldn't do that. In fact, the word drink can be translated flooded or drenched. And you can even see that in the translation. We were made to drink. So It's not that it goes down through our mouth into our belly isn't the idea of the word, but the point is the two are saying the same thing. In one spirit we were all baptized into one body and all were made to drink. We were all drenched in the one spirit. The Spirit of God washing us clean. By trusting in Christ as our Savior, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit who washes us and are thereby baptized into the church as symbolized in believers' baptism. So there's a very diverse part here. Jews and Gentiles, but united in one Spirit. Now, verse 14, Paul will focus attention on what it appears to be on the members of the church who thought of themselves as inferior because they had not received miraculous gifts which were so revered in the Corinthian church, or at least they had not received the gifts that other people thought should be revered, and so they were looked down upon. I think the, the angle that Paul uses here seems to indicate he's talking to those people. I'm just a common Joe. I don't have a lot of dramatic gifts. Let me talk to you, says Paul. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Good thing or bad thing? That's a good thing. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? I mean, that's just ridiculous. But here's the truth. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. Never, ever despise what God has chosen to do. Namely, how He has chosen to gift you. Don't ever despise that. Nurture it. Walk in it. Develop it. Don't sit around moping. I wish I was this. I wish I was that. Don't despise what God has done and don't despise your place in the body where He has put you. There seems then to be a shift. I, um, I need to read verse 19 and 20 first. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body, and that's a good thing. Now at verse 21, perhaps a bit of a shift as the metaphor is shifted to exhort the unusual Christian. Can I say that? The average Christian? And now the one with unusual gifts. God, by His Spirit, has given unique gifts to build up His body. He wants to talk to these people now, verse 21, when He says, The eye cannot say to the hand. I see how He takes the same relationships that He's just talked about and said, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. I mean, we're in bad shape without eyes, without sight. But we need the hand to bring about what the eye sees. We're in bad shape without a head, without a brain. But we need the feet to take the body where the brain can work. Verse 22, on the contrary, then, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another." We expend great care to make sure that certain parts of our body are covered at all times. As a young buck, uh, blissfully unaware of the effects of sun on skin, I spent my summers many, many moons ago basically in a pair of shorts. These days, I'm covering up increasingly expansive portions of my body. I don't take my shirt off in public anymore. And it has nothing to do with the sun. It has to do with the presentability of the top half of my body. We get that. We cover things. And we're not against those things that we cover. In fact, they're really important parts of the body. That's what Paul's saying. Your attractive parts are not covered but not one of those parts scoffs at your less presentable parts. You need all your parts. Every member matters to the entire body. Whatever gift the Spirit of God has given is to be used, pursued, enhanced as utterly necessary. We may cover a member from being in a particular place for the good of everyone, indeed for the good of that member. That never means that person is unimportant. Have you ever broken a bone? As he says, verse 26, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You break your hand and your entire body goes into compassion mode for your hand. Your foot doesn't say, hand, what's your problem? I'm fine, get over it. This doesn't do that. Your whole body hurts for your hand and is very protective of your hand. If someone says, you have beautiful eyes, your nose doesn't speak up and say, I'm right here, I can hear this, what about me? Your whole body rejoices. Your feet are dancing, I guess, if, if anybody would ever compliment your eyes. But everything's happy about it. We should not psychologize these verses or read them over in an overly sociological manner. There's no prescription how we go about this as a church. And the interests of people vary quite widely in how they desire to be handled as they suffer and as they rejoice. But that's not the point. Here's the point. Verse 27, as he comes to close, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's the whole point. And God has appointed in the church, okay, we want to get to this question of what's most important? Apostles. Then prophets who also declare the word of the Lord from the mouth of the Lord. And then third, teachers who take that message and divulge it to the people of God. And then miracles and gifts of healing and helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. Now ask yourself the question, are all apostles? There's just a handful of them. Well, a little more than two handfuls. But are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? you got to be asleep to not know the answer to these questions. This has been his point all the way through. Absolutely not. No. It's not like a game where everybody is unified in their response, all doing the same thing, we hope cheering on this great victory. Does the symphony all play on a tuba? Be horrible. I don't know, I guess it's been done, but just for fun. It doesn't happen very often, and they don't collect a lot of money when they do it. 
No, there's all kinds of instruments. They're all put together not for their own sake, but for the good of the body. And I'll say to you, earnestly desire the higher gifts. But I'll show you still a more excellent way. By the grace of God, we pick that up next week. But when you just focus there and meditate there, and I know many of you, it's so encouraging, read the passage for the week to come and think about it and meditate on it. Meditate on this 31st verse in light of the fact that the Holy Spirit of God displays His presence among us by pouring out these gifts. And Paul can say, without blushing, but I show you a better way, a superior way, the way of love within the assembly. Just briefly, in light of this text that helps us on our self-perception, how we see ourselves as a church, I want to say to you who say this, I mean, you would not put it down on paper, you probably never express it, but you say this deep in your heart, there is like this resounding message that says, I don't need the church. I'm okay without it. And I, and I, I hear, you know, there's this verse, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but I really don't need it. You're thinking in completely the wrong way. To say, I don't need the church, is to speak against the agenda that Jesus is pressing with his people throughout the world. He sovereignly places within the body members who are there for the common good. You don't want to stand up to the Lord of the church and say, I don't need that. And clearly he doesn't need you, he doesn't need me, he doesn't need any of us, but we do need him. We need his plan, we need his agenda, we need his people. Spirit baptism joins us to the universal church and church membership borrows from this rich metaphor of the body parts a oneness and an identity with a local body of believers that carries out the spirit of this message. Secondly, there's some echoing around in your head, again, not stated, but the truth of the matter is you would say, the church needs me more than it needs others. I'm more important than others. You're not. I'm not. Don't ever think that. This is pride, and it's going to fuel competition. Jesus does not need any one of us. He can take any one of us out, and his church can thrive without you and me. Thirdly, another message that echoes in the heads of some, the church does not need me at all. The church does not need me. And here we probably draw into the net far more people. It really doesn't need me. People say this often, and I think they mean it as a compliment, but they come into our church and they say, there's nothing for me to do. It's such a kind of run well and operates well and people are involved and I don't know really what to do and I just don't really think there's a place for me. I know they mean that as a compliment on some level. But also on another level, if you think that, you're really out of sync with the agenda of Jesus. He's placed every one of us in the body for some function. And that may be at the end of my life, if God leaves me around here that long, I'm laying in a bed and I'm praying for you. And that's what I do. And that's all I do. But I'm prepared for that. If God gives me the 85 or 95 or whatever, that that's all I can do day by day is sit in a bed. I want to have names next to me that I'm praying for. I can do something to serve Christ's cause with the abilities he's given me. The church does not need me. 
He has sovereignly supplied you to this assembly if you are a member of this church, if you've covenanted with us, and He has done so for the common good. Now, it may be that you need to do some work at discerning where that is, how you fit within this particular family, and there we need to do work to continue to grow as a church to learn how to bring that about more effectively and more quickly. But along those lines, your self-perception is Jesus has placed me here in this body for a reason. It's for the common good, and I want to get busy and active to that end in the way God's gifted me. So on the one hand are those who say, here's how God has gifted me. Here's what I must do. I am my own agent to represent myself in this assembly and tell everybody else what I'm supposed to do here. Not good thinking. But it's just as bad thinking that says, I'll just wait around, see if somebody asks me to do something. I don't really see how I can contribute here. You are in the body for a function. If a foot belongs to your body and is useful, you belong to this body and are useful. You're useful for the common good. And what you may have to do as you work through that issue is root out some pride. There's sort of that self-pitying pride says, I can't do anything here. I can't function here. They don't need me. Maybe what you really want is to be seen and acknowledged and asked. I know I'm pressing hard there, but I would just encourage you, think past that. Think higher. The sovereign Lord has given you abilities to be busy for the cause of Christ and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's giving you those capacities. Be patient, take time, but move forward. Don't wait around for man to put you into the place where Christ wants you to be. But work together in love with your brothers and sisters to pursue all that he intends. So the self-perception that we must embrace in light of this passage ultimately is not a symphony. It's something much greater. It is the body of Christ. One confession, many gifts displaying the Spirit's presence with us, and one body functioning with a diversity of gifts for the glory of our Savior who bought us. And for the display of the Spirit who empowers this body to serve Christ in this world until we're called home. Stand with me, please, as we seek the Lord in prayer.